This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. In 1999, black farmers won a landmark civil rights case against the U.S. government. But Orlando attorney Greg Francis says there's still more work to be done in the path to equity in agriculture. Francis has a book out about the case and the settlement he won for those farmers called Just Harvest. Today I'll talk with Francis about his book and the fight for equality for black farmers. Also joining the conversation, John Rivers of Four Rivers Smokehouse, who explains how a new farm campus he's developing could help bring more diversity to agriculture. First of all, I want to welcome you both. Greg Francis, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And John Rivers, thank you too as well. My pleasure. Thank you. Greg, for for those who aren't familiar with uh, the book, Just Harvest, and the history behind it, can you just give us the pricey? What's the kind of elevator pitch for you? Uh, Just Harvest is a book uh, regarding um, farming in uh, America by black farmers, kind of the history of that their farming leading up to a landmark case of Pigford versus Glickman. That was a uh, case of uh, against the United States Department of Agriculture for discrimination against black farmers. Uh, and if you think about farming, is there kind of an analogy to to um, to other sort of land use in the United States? Like like if people are familiar with maybe redlining, is there, are there some kind of parallels to be drawn between that and the way farming practices were carried out? And does this case factor into that? Yeah, very much so. Uh, what essentially the, the case was about was the lack of resources that were being provided to uh, African American farmers that had been that would be provided to everyone else. So mm-hmm. it was kind of a systemic discrimination against the farmers uh, in terms of resources that were being provided by the USDA for um, supposedly for all farmers. Mm-hmm. And this was a case which was a victory for for those black farmers, right? Right, absolutely. This was a, a case, uh, although it only involved the discrimination between 1981 and 1996. It was certainly a victory for the farmers in terms of acknowledgement of the treatment that they had been receiving for so many years. Mm-hmm. Now, is this a case that you were sort of familiar with, and was it something you had to do a lot of research on yourself? I, I knew nothing about this case. I knew nothing about uh, farming. I grew up in Orlando, so I didn't I didn't know many farmers. I didn't know any farmers. Um, mm-hmm. But by virtue of me going to um, Mississippi, and I was running an office in Mississippi at the time, uh, I became familiar with the case and the plight of the farmers. Mm-hmm. Where do things stand now? Like, obviously, you know, issues around land use and, and racial discrimination, they have long legacies, right? So even if a case is won sort of in the 80s or something, that there's still going to be a long tail to the discrimination that went before it. So how do you see things now in terms of equity when it comes to, to farming and land use? Well, I think that the, that the case was a, a beginning of acknowledgement by the USDA of their uh, past discrimination. Um more recently, uh, in the Biden administration, there has been there has been proposed legislation that would uh, give debt relief to a bunch of black farmers who, um, you know, over the years had been discriminated against. Mm-hmm. That has been met with some resistance lately, and it's now tied up in the courts. But I think that the, at least there's an acknowledgement, and at least there's a focus on uh, attempting to address, you know, past behavior. John, tell me about how you came to be involved with Greg and and why you decided to throw your weight behind the book and promoting it. Great. Absolutely. Our foundation right now is in in the middle of a project called Four Roots Farm. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are building a farm campus in Orlando. And it's uh, a little under 40 acres. And the intent of the farm campus is to teach both the youth 
um, as well as teachers and parents and farmers about different styles and different ways of uh, approaching agriculture Mm -hmm. from a sustainable and regenerative uh, perspective. Part of the a key piece of the the actual campus itself is telling the the history and the story of Florida farming and highlighting the Florida farmers that are out there. And if you look back in our history, you know the black farmer had a key piece in that role in forming what farming is today in America. So when I found out about Greg and how he was representing the black farmers, not not just here in Florida but from all over the country. You know, that directly aligns with our mission to tell that story, as well as one of the more important things, to advance it. Mm-hmm. You know, how can we work to go collectively to pour into both current black farmers, that there aren't that many of them out there, by the way, and more importantly, the youth. You know, mm-hmm. how do we inspire young black African-American students to want to learn more about agriculture in general? That was our appeal. Right. If there aren't many black farmers out there, they don't have, you know, generations of, younger generations of farmers coming up, presumably, to, to pass that knowledge on to. That's right. That's right. And so many people, especially young students today, I mean, surprisingly, a lot of them don't understand even where that tomatoes come from the ground. Mm-hmm. So that's a starting point. The other thing that we're working against is the perception of farming. You know, when, when young students think of farming, it's easy to think about a pitchfork and being out in the middle of the field. But Agriculture itself has so many different legs to it, from science to botany to chemistry to to hydroponics to aquaponics, all the technology that's involved. So those are some of the areas that we're hoping to spark interest. How far along is the campus? We are in permits right now. It's uh, six years in the process of design. Mm -hmm. We've got everything approved by the city. Uh, We started clearing the land already. And uh, now we're waiting for the permits to come in while we're fundraising. And tell me, where, where is it? It's really nice. It's, it's two miles outside of downtown, uh-huh. which is a blessing. It's right on uh, John Young Parkway, just north of Colonial. Mm-hmm. It's part of what's being called the packing district that okay. Dr. Phillips is developing. And the thing that makes it nice about that is the proximity to the neighborhoods and to some of the students and youth that we're trying to inspire. Yeah. If we were up in uh, uh, Lake County or Apopka or somewhere like that, you know, and I took a, an inner city child and I bust them out there, they really couldn't relate to it. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we're right in the backyard, not only just proximity, but that also gives us ongoing access to those students mm-hmm. and to those families. So it's not just a one-time visit, but we can host programs and education and, and cooking classes as well. And, you know, I don't need to tell you, John, but but Orlando is changing and growing so fast, right? So I imagine like 10 years from now, that may be a little island of green and a sea of development. Oh, it absolutely uh, right. is. Everything you know of John Young Parkway today will be transformed. Mm-hmm. Greg, did you grow up in Orlando? Yes, I grew up in Orlando. I'm originally from Panama and Central America, but when we came to America, I grew up here in Orlando, so mm-hmm. very familiar with that area. So what was your sort of first experience, I guess, of, of a farm? Did you do a farm visit as a kid, or, or like, what's your experience been? You know, my experience really uh, came about as a result of this case. Once I mm-hmm. started hearing the uh, the plight of the farmers, their stories, and that type of thing, I, I started going out and meeting the farmers on their farms, and so I'd have a better understanding of exactly what it was and who it was that I'd be representing. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this idea of a teaching farm in the middle of an urban setting as a way to to bring in kind of a, a new generation of people and give them some sense of what it is, where food comes from? Right. I, th- I think it's something that's going to be um, – uh, it's a project that I think will be uh, repeated and replicated all across the United States. This is – it's so important to – uh, understand where the food comes from for our kids to understand that how to grow 
um, different produce, but also all the other aspects that John talked about in agriculture. And I think that this will be uh, an opportunity for uh, students on, here in Central Florida to learn uh, about agriculture, but also uh, serve as a model for similar programs to be uh, created elsewhere in the United States. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining me, my guest, uh, Greg Francis, he is an attorney and the author of Just Harvest, about a, a landmark case involving farms in the United States. And we're also joined by uh, John Rivers, uh, the owner of Four Rivers Smokehouse, and uh, we're talking also about the Four Roots Farm Project. John, the farm-to-table movement, I guess, has been around for a while now. Um, is that sort of part of, of what motivated you to, to develop this campus too, to sort of give people more of a connection to you know, where the food comes from. It, it, it absolutely is. You know, the, you, you look at some of the stats just here in Orange County, and we have t- one out of every five of our students at OCPS who are living in food insecurity. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the only food that they eat is actually at school. And it's not just the kids. There's over 2 million missed meals per year in Orange County from all the adults as well. Then you couple that with what is happening in the agricultural industry. It's a further separation of where food is produced and where food is consumed. On average today in the United States, our our fruits and our vegetables travel over 1,782 miles to get to our plates. Mm -hmm. On top of that, we have 51% of our fruits and vegetables in the United States coming from outside of the country. And there's no reason that we can't be growing that right here in our backyard. And it is hurting the industry. On average, over 330 farmers lose their property every week in the United States. We are nearing the number of 2 million farms for the first time since post-Civil War days. Hmm. We were up near 3 million at, at, at the height of the United States. So there has to be a, a movement of, of educating, of inspiring, and it doesn't have to be just students. It's the consumers, too. When they go to the grocery store and they take a look at the fruits and the vegetables that are there, they look for the local sources from it. Because behind every local source of fruit and vegetable, there's a family. There's a farmer. This is more long-term, right? You're trying to sort of plant the seed, I suppose, to, to use a cliche, to, for the next generation of farmers. But what about um, the idea of, uh, you know, smaller-scale kind of urban farms? Like, could there be something like what you're developing on this campus that you could see more of in the future? And, and could there be an argument made to say, this is actually going to be a, a winner from a business perspective? Yes and yes on both of those questions. On the farm, we're actually highlighting six different styles of farming Mm -hmm. because not everybody has a 1,000 acres that they can grow in. I want to be able to teach a business or a community that's living in in a food desert how can they can grow in their own backyard. So the the opportunity to plant uh, urban farms, we're doing those today. We've already built two, one at Okoe High School, one at Edgewater, and uh, we're talking right now about building one on a Boys and Girls Club mm-hmm. so we can teach those folks just how to grow. And then the other thing is from the business perspective, you know, we have took the initiative. We started two years ago, and that's how long it's taken. We went out and we looked at every fruit and vegetable that we buy, and we matched it up with Florida farmers. And it was it was not an easy task, but as we sit here today, We buy our corn, our green peppers, our onions, our tomatoes, our lettuce, on and on down the path. We are the number one restaurant in the state of Florida that's buying from local Florida farmers. And matter of fact, that model has caught the attention of the EPA. Mm -hmm. And we're now working with the EPA to model that and duplicate it in other states and show other businesses. And they don't have to be restaurants. It could be hospitals, anywhere else, how they can leverage the local connection they have with with their farmers. 
Greg, thinking about this from a consumer's perspective, are you do you think a little differently about food just both from your experience of researching and writing the book and then just from working with, with John and, and, and this project? Uh, yeah, from a consumer perspective, I'm certainly familiar with the uh, the food deserts and the fact that, that you know there's a lack of of connection between the farms sometimes and uh, inner cities or urban areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I, I have actually learned a tremendous amount of, about that about the whole food distribution system from my relationship with John and Four Roots and and what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And the the landmark case that you you wrote about like that's one aspect of it like highlights one aspect of inequality but thinking about food deserts there's some ingrained inequalities there too what do you think about those issues and is is there maybe material for another book down right. the track uh, potentially more information or more uh, more for another book but I, I think that the, you know the food deserts uh, occur because uh, of business decisions that that various grocery stores or other you know food producers make as to you know where they're going to place those stores and where they're going to therefore make the food available uh, mm-hmm. for everyone but what's what's exciting about the for me about the, my connection with the uh, four roots foundation is that we we have acknowledged the the past discrimination but now we're doing something about it mm-hmm. we're we're moving forward and we're attempting to address those um those those wrongs of the past and doing it in a very positive way by investing in um, communities and students and consumers uh, who really need it. So it's it's doing good and doing you know doing well at the same time. What uh, kind of reaction have you had? Or what's the response been to the book so far? Uh, it's been a it's been a um, uh, m- most of the reaction that I get is that they knew nothing about the case, mm-hmm. nothing about the plight of the farmers. Uh, so for many, it's a history lesson. Um, and they are, uh, you know, the, the overall reception has been, you know, thank you for telling this story and letting us know what happened and kind of the history of farming uh, in America. I wonder, too, you know, as an attorney, do you sort of feel like that's something that needs to be righted to? Like, should should this this case be taught in law school, for example? Absolutely. I think that, you know, the more the more we know about our history, the um, you know, the more likely we are not to repeat that that kind of history. But you know the the treatment that the black farmers received, I think, is um, symbolic of you know systemic racism across uh, America and how one system that is put into place and um, you know overall looks like it's a fair program, how it's implemented may in fact uh, affect one group of people mm-hmm. uh, differently, and that we need to pay attention to that kind of thing. John, I just wanted to come back to the the notion of food deserts, and obviously the the pandemic really highlighted some of the, uh, I guess, some of those food insecurities, right? I mean, I think for me, just reporting on it, it made me realize how critical schools are in terms of a pipeline for food for families who struggle sometimes to put that food on the table from the point of view of a restaurateur and, and somebody who's involved in some of the work around food equality or food insecurity like how did the last kind of 18 months roll out for you you know you're not alone matthew so many i always say that covid didn't cause food uh, shortages and hunger it just brought it to light you know when when the community saw firsthand two things those students in particular i think that was one of the ma- major pivoting points when they saw that students weren't getting food that they depended on and then remember the front page of the Orlando Sentinel, that big picture on the beach of um, looked like a dump truck of green peppers and yellow peppers oh, yeah. and squash that was mm-hmm. up. That brought to light how much food waste is actually going on. 
So if there was a positive that came out of, of the pandemic, it was helping to raise the awareness of both of those plights that we're facing, not just as a state, but as a country. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the opportunity when that happened. We stepped in with our foundation. We've always worked with OCPS, and we made the offer to help get food to some of those students who couldn't get to the feeding sites, which were over 50 of them set up in our in OCPS. And uh, I went from uh, a call on one day saying, nope, we've got it all covered, to less than two weeks later, we were serving um, actually throughout the entire state 46 different uh, sites, hmm. uh, over 100,000 meals per day to these kids who otherwise weren't getting it. And the, the, the exciting thing that we found about it, the food that we were serving was that wasted produce from the fields. We called it food re- produce rescuing. We actually had hmm. people driving trucks around the state, getting that produce before it was going bad, bringing it back to our commissary, cooking it, making meals, and then handing those out to the students. So we were able to find a link between those two problems. Greg Francis, what's next for you? Are you thinking more about these these big picture equality issues and, and, and are you sort of thinking about what comes after this book? Uh, yeah, there, there probably are more books to come, but we've also created or I've also created the uh, Just Harvest Foundation, which um, will do things such as partner with, with Four Roots on some of their projects in terms of educating uh, young, um, young farmers uh, in addition to um, uh, discussing and addressing the um, housing uh, shortage for, for uh, minorities in, in, in America. That's, that's another issue certainly to be addressed. And through my foundation, I hope to educate first-time home buyers and encourage them to, to buy homes and, and hopefully close that, that, that gap of uh, lack of housing. Mm-hmm. John, it sounds like your work's cut out for you too, but what, what is the next kind of 12 months or so hold? Are, are you, you're, you're having to make some more progress on the, on the Four Roots uh, farm? We are. We're not only pushing forward on the property itself. Um, we're continuing to look for what we call expressions, so opportunities that we can build urban farms or go into teaching institutions. Um, we just opened the, the Four Roots Cafe at the Science Center where we're teaching kids about where their food comes from. Mm-hmm. And then we're looking outside of there. You know, yeah. Where else can we impact both around the state and um, around the country? I just got fortunate to um, be nominated to speak at the World uh, Food uh, Health Organization Conference on Food in uh, Israel. Hmm. So there's a lot of opportunity to raise awareness about that broken food system, but more importantly, what we could actually do to, to make a difference and impact it. It's the power of barbecue, right? That's, I know. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> well, uh, John Rivers, uh, I want to thank you very much for coming in and sharing your story. Appreciate it. Pleasure, Matthew. Thank you for having me. And Greg Francis, thank you as well. Appreciate that. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Still to come, the new dawn of space tourism. Stay with us. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. This week, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos launched to space on his new Shepard spacecraft, a suborbital mission with a crew of three others, including Bezos' brother, 82-year-old aviator Wally Funk, and 18-year-old Oliver Damon, marked the second time in two weeks a billionaire has gone to space. And it signals the dawn of a new era in space travel, the age of space tourism. Well, joining us for more is WMFE space reporter Brendan Byrne. Brendan, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, you got it any time. So there was a lot of hype around this flight, including a highly publicized auction for one of the seats. Um, did the flight, did this mission live up to the hype? Uh, I think if you turned on any news station or television channel, you could see that it absolutely did live up to the hype. Um, everyone was very interested in, in seeing this, and it was highly publicized the day of. And 
I mean, going back to that that auction, the auction got up to twenty eight million dollars for the first seat. You know, I expected it to go for a few million bucks, but I mean, twenty eight million dollars that's a lot. So I mean, there was quite a bit of hype to this, and uh, there was a lot of follow through on the hype. And some nice symmetry there too with the eighty uh, two year old Wally Funk and a, a very young. Uh, passenger on that capsule as well. I think it's kind of symbolic of what space tourism aims to be, right? It it wants to open up space for all. And I mean, what better way for, you know, this first mission from Blue Origin to have both the oldest and youngest person on there, you know, uh, and that's symbolic as to, you know, with all these commercial companies coming online, just who does get access to space? And on paper, it could be anybody, from someone who's 18 years old to someone like Wally, who's 82. The Blue Origin Mission 2 coming just over a week after Sir Richard Branson rocketed to space on board his Virgin Galactic space plane. Uh, I mean, is it just coincidence that we see a couple billionaires heading to space in the same month? The development of these two programs, both um, Blue Origin's New Shepard and uh, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic uh, Unity spacecraft, or Spaceship 2, I'm sorry, uh, I mean, the development were kind of happening happening in parallel, but it's it's no coincidence that we saw them heading to space in the same month. They're two very mm-hmm. competitive guys. Uh, these are very highly publicized um, companies, and and they really need to get. It's a big ask to ask people to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, um, mm-hmm. on these things. So anything that you can do, they're essentially competitors, right, is to to get a leg up on, on the other one. So it's it's no coincidence that they happen so closely together. Both of these companies have been developing these rockets for roughly around the same time. Um, Blue Origin was founded in around 2000, uh, Virgin Galactic um, and its spaceship concept around 2004, 2005. So they both have roughly had, you know, a decade and a half, two decades to work together. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the competitive nature of both Branson and Bezos, along with the competitive nature of the space tourism market, um, is what propelled them to kind of go as fast as they did and uh, come as, as close together as they did for these launches. We haven't seen Elon Musk strapping into one of his Dragon capsules, though, although those have been going up into orbit, in fact, for some time now. Though In some ways, he's you know the first of the, the space titans to, to really achieve that measure of success with his, his program. That's right. I mean, he is a private company that has, you know, paying passengers. The person paying for the flight is NASA and the passengers are astronauts, you know, but he also has a space tourism mission uh, happening at the end of this year. Uh, there's going to be a crew of four that, that purchased an entire mission um, mm-hmm. that will take them into orbit uh, around the Earth and then safely bring them back. Um, he's also going to be bringing another set of space tourists um, through a, a third party, um, and that will take them to the International Space Station and then back again. So, yeah, Elon Musk and, and SpaceX, um, they're pretty much embedded in, you know, this uh, space transportation business, um, both with these private contracts and contracts with NASA. And I mean, Elon Musk isn't shy. He says that he's eventually going to fly to space. <laughs> just, mm-hmm. uh, just just, not this month with the rest of the other billionaires that, that, that made it. <laughs> yeah. What about NASA? What, what do they think of this notion of space tourism? So NASA, rightfully so, is kind of keeping, you know, their, their, their hands out of this. The, the federal agency that is responsible for this is the FAA and, and um, mm-hmm. their division of commercial uh, space. But but NASA is also standing up a, a a whole agency 
or, or a, a department within the agency to explore suborbital research and sending their astronauts on these suborbital flights. Um, the suborbital ventures from, you know, both Virgin Galactic and from Blue Origin, you know, they can serve as a great testbed for future astronauts. They are also phenomenal research platforms for academics and for NASA, the space agency itself. I mean, for instance, on the Virgin Galactic flight earlier this month, there was there was a university experiment from the University of Florida on there about how mm-hmm. plants work and, and, and how their genes are actually developed while in zero gravity so or, or microgravity. Mm-hmm. So NASA's kind of looking at this as a, another suborbital testbed, which is a lot cheaper than sending stuff to the International Space Station. So NASA and the science community are, are both looking at this very closely. Um, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin have hosted research payloads on their test missions before humans actually mm-hmm. rode on uh, on these uh, flights this month. So I think with NASA, there's an opportunity for them to get their astronauts some space experience and also get some of the research that has been backed up um, because space on the ISS is limited uh, to get it into space and, and get it to where it needs to go. So I think NASA is very optimistic about this you know, burgeoning uh, industry. Well, it's interesting to hear that they, they're sort of seeing a scientific aspect to all of this because what we've really seen, I think, in the last two launches with Bezos and Branson has, has been the kind of pizzazz, the, the glamour of it, right? I mean, they really hyped that up. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think that that's, you know, that, that's a lot of folks that I talk to. There's the criticism of, the, you know, that, that this is just a bunch of rich guys going into space, which it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, space tourism is only going to be for those that are wealthy and have hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it. There might mm-hmm. be a few one-offs where some foundations will have a raffle to pay a regular person to go up there. But, I mean, the long and short of it is, you know, people like you and me, Matt, aren't going <laughs> to go on one of these anytime soon. But there, this really does open up so much research. So right now, microgravity research is, is so important in, in mm-hmm. both the um, uh, agriculture field, uh, looking at how plant genes work, and also in, in the pharmaceutical industry. You can, hmm. you can kind of grow things a lot easier in microgravity. And, and really the way that you can achieve microgravity ultimately is sending something to the International Space Station. It stays up there for an extended period of time. That's very right. expensive and time is limited up there. You can also drop something from very high and get a few seconds of microgravity or do mm-hmm. some research on the vomit comet, which gives you, you know, 20 or 30 <laughs> seconds. You know, You're so, still due at flight on that, aren't you, Brendan? Oh, I would love to do that. <laughs> but but really what, what, what companies like Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic do is they open up some someplace in the middle between the vomit comet and between the International Space Station. It's a little more affordable, but gives you, you know, between four and six minutes of microgravity. Mm-hmm. Researchers are really excited about this. There's been some researchers from the University of Central Florida who have had their payloads fly on both vehicles. Um, mm. And just to have that opportunity happen more is is going to be great for the research community. Just back to a point you made at the start of our conversation about um, the cost. And of course, Branson talked about making space accessible to all after they touched down but to your point, it's really only accessible to people with a lot of money to spare. I mean, do you have a sense of what the market is for this? Does that auction uh, for Blue Origin's mission give us a, give us an idea of how much of an appetite there is for people willing to spend that kind of money to go up to space? Oh, I think it absolutely does. And I think it was a genius business plan for by Blue Origin to have the auction to let the people that were going to be paying for this 
set the market rate for it. $28 million. I don't even think anybody at Blue Origin imagined it would go that high. But now they can look at that and say, look how many people are willing to pay all of this money. Let's go ahead and set our ticket prices based upon that. We don't know what the average mm-hmm. ticket price is going to be for Blue Origin. As I mentioned, we don't even know what the second uh, highest bid was, uh, which right. happened to be Oliver Damon's seat. So obviously there is a market for it. And, and Jeff Bezos said after his flight, you know, they've collected some $100 million in revenue already just on, on these future flights. When it comes to Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, I think we're looking at a ticket price around 250000 per seat. And that company has, has said that, you know, it has already secured 600 reservations. Are they all at 250000 Maybe they could be more than that. But there is definitely a market out there, as we can see by how many how much people are willing to pay for Blue Origin and those 600 reservations for Virgin Galactic. A lot of people want to go to space. I wonder if the likes of Jeff Bezos sees this as a way to help fund some of the other things he's doing in, in research into space travel, because as you know, it's very expensive to send rockets up into space. And I did read that he was selling off you know, part of his stock in Amazon. Of course, goodness knows he can afford to do that every year just <laughs> to support the space side of his ventures. But could there be an argument to be made that space tourism will help sort of fund that in the future? Absolutely. I don't think anything happens in these space companies, you know, in vacuums. Uh, pardon the mm. pun. Everything <laughs> kind of has to do with, you know, long-term goals. And Blue Origin is building a bigger rocket that it will take payloads, not people, into low Earth orbit. That's going to launch from here. It's called New Glenn. Mm. And the upper stage of that rocket is based on the rocket engineering that they did for the new Shepard, the space tourism um, engine. So what they've spent developing that rocket engine is what's going into this larger system um, Mm -hmm. that's going to launch from Cape Canaveral. Will that revenue go towards, you know, their bottom line? Absolutely, the revenue they make from this. Um, and, And the same can be said about Virgin Galactic, which also has another company called Virgin Orbit, which is sending things into orbit, payloads, not people. Um, So all of this is kind of fueling um, these bigger ambitions and long-term ambitions uh, for what they're doing. So absolutely, the the people are going to pay for uh, these these bigger projects at these companies. I imagine the folks at Space Florida and, and others who are keeping an eye on this must be wondering what kind of space tourism opportunities there will be launching from Florida, right? I mean, both those those launches, the Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin were out west, but surely there's there's uh, something for, for Florida in the way of space tourism in the future. Oh, absolutely. And there's there's already a company that has um, that hopes to bring space tourism here to Florida, although we'll use the term space very loosely here. Uh, it, mm-hmm. It's a company that wants to have this you know, this balloon that takes this kind of pressurized gondola uh, up very high in altitude uh, across the state where you can kind of get some similar views to what you'd get from Blue Origin and from uh, Virgin Galactic, although it's it doesn't go nearly as high. Um, right. But um, yeah, that, that, you know, they've done some test launches here. Uh, they're still trying to figure out where they want their home base to be. A, a likely place would be you know, the Kennedy Space Center's launch and landing facility. Um, So yeah, definitely the state wants to have some space tourism here. 
and and they absolutely could. The infrastructure is here. Um, I talked earlier about Elon Musk and SpaceX's Crew Dragon is taking a you know a crew of space tourists later this mm-hmm. year. That that's launching from here. Um, you know that crew is going to have to spend time in Florida, stay in Florida. You know that's going to bring a lot of attention and people to the state. So I mean, you can argue space tourism is already here uh, with these SpaceX missions. Well, Brendan Byrne, WMFE space reporter and host of Are We There Yet? You can catch that on air on Tuesday evenings and online, WMFE.org. Thanks so much for joining us. You got it. Anytime. Up next, fighting for the rights of nature. WMFE's Amy Green talks with Chuck O'Neill about his push to get protections for Florida's environment written into the state constitution. We're back in a minute. Welcome back to Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. By a margin of nearly 90%, Orange County voters approved a charter amendment last November aimed at protecting the, quote, rights of nature. We're now back as a taking the issue statewide by pushing five amendments to the Florida Constitution. WMFE environmental reporter Amy Green talked about that effort with Chuck O'Neill. He's the chairman of the Florida Rights of Nature Network. Chuck O'Neill, the amendments are aimed at protecting wetlands and waterways and preventing hunting of iconic species like the Florida black bear. The amendments also would prohibit captive hunting and toll roads through conservation and rural lands. The common thread through a lot of the amendments is rights of nature. What does that mean, rights of nature? In our society, the way that it was set up originally, there were only a certain few people who were rights-bearing. And, and generally, when the, when the Constitution was written, that, that was uh, white property-owning males. And over the course of time, uh, that has, has changed. It's broadened. Because under the, under the Constitution, you're either uh, a person, which is rights-bearing, or your property— so over the course of time, since 1783, since the Constitution was uh, ratified, that uh, uh, initially, uh, for instance, uh, people of color, uh, uh, slaves in particular, were freed, of course, during the, uh, through the Civil War era. And then in the early 1900s, women uh, were able to vote and, and were able to gain full personhood. And uh, the evolution of the expansion of these rights uh, is now at a point that we can look at nature not as property, not as something that's a thing, but something that can have rights, not the rights of a person, but to have certain rights, as, as we do here in Orange County, our waterways have rights. And how does that, how does that affect the effort to protect Florida's environment. Yeah, the way that we look at Florida's environment right now and the protection of it is through a system of regulations. And regulation says that you can damage that that ecosystem at a certain rate of speed. So it's it's regulating the decline of the destruction of our natural world, but the end point is always at the system failure, ecosystem failure. Uh, we don't really have a system of protecting the environment. We have a system of basically abusing the environment at a regulated rate. This is an ambitious effort, five amendments to the Florida Constitution. Why are the amendments important? All five amendments are part and parcel of an idea to create a body of law in which nature 
has rights, that we have a, a rights-bearing entity, our, our rivers, our wildlife, our conservation lands, that they have certain rights that are able to be upheld in court by any citizen of the state of Florida. Right now, if something would happen to uh, wetlands or, or whatever, and you were to object, your your methodology under the current system is to write a letter to your state representative or to go to a, a, a town hall meeting and stand at a podium and speak for three minutes. What these do is it creates, it empowers citizens to bring an action, bring a, a, a legal action on behalf of these natural entities to say, wait a minute, these entities have rights and I am here to stand up for those entities to protect the rights that have been incorporated into our Constitution. Can you give an example? You're engaged in a legal action right now, um, right here in Central Florida under the Orange County uh, Charter Amendment. I am. On November 3rd of 2020, Orange County passed by uh, overwhelmingly 89% a charter amendment that gave four rights to our water bodies, our natural water bodies within Orange County. The right to exist, the right to flow, the right to be protected against pollution, and the right to maintain a healthy ecosystem. Six days after that passed, the developer filed a application to dredge and fill over 100 acres of wetlands inside Orange County. And what What we have done is to file an action against not only the developer but also the Florida Department of Environmental Protection to block them from destroying these wetlands because these wetlands are important. They filter water that comes down from Wild Cypress uh, Swamp through these two streams, Wild Cypress Branch and Boggy Branch that empty into the Crosby Island Marsh that feeds clean water into Lake Hart and Lake Mary Jane. So this is an integral part of the system of waterways within the county. And what if, if they're allowed to, to get these dredge and fill permits, what it would do is uh, completely destroy the ecosystem that is providing clean water to those lakes. And what will happen eventually is the citizens of of Orange County will have to mechanically filter this water. The water that's being naturally filtered now at no cost to the citizens, we're going to have to go in and clean this water mechanically at a great expense to us. So um, what we've done is we we filed this lawsuit to block the issuance of what's called a 404 dredge and fill permit to that would enable a developer to do this damage to this uh, precious ecosystem. And where does that litigation stand now? Well, uh, as a matter of fact, we heard from the Beachline South Residential, who's the developer. They filed a motion to dismiss. Uh, Prior to that, the uh, Secretary Valenstein uh, filed a motion to dismiss. Former Secretary Valenstein. Well, you know, that's that's an odd point, uh, Amy, because... Even after he left office, uh, according to this filing, he filed this uh, action. Uh, the, the, uh, and, and 
you know, I, I, I know um, our governor was just here and he was talking about the importance of conservation land. So while I'm hearing in my ears uh, you reporting about DeSantis talking about how important it is to uh, preserve conservation land, uh, with my eyes, I'm reading this motion to dismiss from his secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection saying that what we're doing in protecting this waterway is frivolous, right? So here's here's DeSantis on one side saying we have $300 million to conserve land. And here on the other side, his secretary is saying that an action to just not issue a permit to destroy something, which would cost nothing, that the act of not destroying this would cost the state nothing. And and on the other hand, uh, uh, we, we, we've got this it, – it's I, there's no other way to say it. It's duplicitous. It's duplicitous for the governor on the one hand to, 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 to talk about the importance of conserving land and on the other hand his secretary saying what we're doing is frivolous. The legislature this spring approved a measure making it harder to get constitutional amendments like these on the ballot The measure placed a $3,000 cap on contributions to organizations like yours. How does that change things for you? Well, you know, this is one of the good uh, cases of being broke. Um, Our political committee has no money. And as as a result, because it has no money, it has filed an affidavit, what's called an affidavit of undue burden, which means we don't have to pay to verify the the signatures that we get on the petitions. Uh, and because because of that, we were not affected by the $3,000 cap. Now, the judge, I believe, in, in that case, the ACLU brought a case saying that, wait, wait a minute, if, if, if you're saying on the one hand that uh, through Citizens United that uh, corporations can give an unlimited amount of money to get a political candidate elected, and yet, on the other hand, if you're going through uh, a, a citizen's initiative, you can only give three thousand uh, dollars. Again, duplicity uh, in the in the greatest sense of the word, duplicity. So uh, now that now that the judge has put a stay, they haven't ruled in the case, but they put a stay. Anyone can donate more than three thousand dollars to a citizens' initiative uh, political committee. But uh, again, we're 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 operating. This is a, a purely grassroots effort. We have no paid employees. All, all the people that you see, if you do see them out at the library or a, a farmers market, they are uh, totally working voluntarily. Your organization needs nearly nine hundred thousand signatures per initiative, plus state supreme court approval on the wording to get the amendments on the ballot. How are you guys getting the word out and everything? We've been very fortunate to have a lot of uh, good publicity. Uh, it, you know what the the amazing thing about this? Okay, we're, we're it's a uh, broke uh, political committee. We have no money. We have no paid staff. There's no paid executive director, and yet sixty days after the Secretary of State gave us the okay to go ahead and start collecting petitions, we see that uh, 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 Congressman Charlie Crist, who's running for governor, has put it into his clean water platform. So our our right to clean water 
has gone from from nothingness to uh, an issue in the gubernatorial election. And, you know, we're, we're very glad to hear about that. But we're also very appreciative of uh, uh, news services and newspapers and um, uh, television stations that have given it some p- publicity, uh, talking about it, doing stories about the f- uh, five amendments, whether individually or as a group. So we're, we've been very fortunate in that respect. There have been other ballot initiatives on behalf of Florida's environment. How is this one different? Well, this one is is really uh, of a different nature. No pun intended. This is uh, – others have said, okay, we're going to work within the existing system and create new regulations to help slow down the destruction of our environment. This – set of five is saying we are going to change the body of law from a regulatory system to a rights-based system. And we're going to incorporate the rights of nature into the state constitution so that individuals can enforce these uh, particular constitutional amendments, that they don't have to wait for a Department of Environmental Protection to step forward and do it, because we we are seeing now in area after area, whether we're talking about the uh, Biscayne Bay or the Indian River Lagoon or the Caloosahatchee River or now uh, Tampa Bay, the systematic failure of the regulatory apparatus to safeguard the protections of nature, specifically clean water in the state of Florida. What we have now is not working. We cannot keep building upon a system that has utterly failed the citizens of Florida and and also uh, the the wildlife and the wild places of Florida that we all love and moved here for or the reason why we stay here. All of this is, in essence, being destroyed at an accelerated rate, and it's time for the the citizens of the state state of Florida to step forward and do something about it. Chuck O'Neill, you ran for the state senate in 2016. Do you have plans to run for office again? Never again, never again, Amy. That was uh, that was a real eye opener. Running for public office, it's it enabled me to see what is wrong with the system, because so much of your ability to uh, campaign, so much of your your ability to move forward in the political realm has to do with your ability to raise money. So if you're continually reaching out to entities that have a lot of money, it is very difficult to represent those that have no money. And as a class, uh, nature, wildlife uh, has no money. And if if that's what you're serving to protect, if that's what you're aiming to protect, you are going to have a very, very difficult time uh, raising money to be an active candidate uh, in in the state of Florida. Now, uh, you know, there are those who campaign on a, uh, a platform of uh, environmental protection, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we hope that they follow through and, and, and do what, what they say. 
But this methodology of putting it in, in the Constitution for individuals to step forward in protection of nature is a, a complete change in paradigm that will be totally a part of, of being dependent on our elected officials and representatives. This is dependent solely on the citizens of Florida and not upon a system that has continually failed us. A campaign for a ballot initiative like this takes money. How is that different from a political campaign or a campaign for a candidate? Well, that you know that that's a that's a great question. For instance, here in Orange County, we uh, were able to get this charter amendment on the ballot with absolutely no money. We kept going to meetings to the meetings of the Charter Review Commission. And it cost no money to put the proposal in front of the Charter Review Commission. We were able to attend 11 meetings of the the subcommittee that was formed to develop the language. We were able to go for free to the uh, uh, public meeting where they voted twice on whether to put it on the ballot. And then once it did get on the ballot, uh, I I was told that uh, don't even – think about trying to put something on the ballot without having less than 300000 in the bank. Uh, all told, I think we spent about $30,000 in that entire campaign uh, to, to get it into the Orange County Charter. And one of the gratifying things is if you go into the Muni Code of, of Orange County, you'll see this exact language that we proposed that is now part of the Charter. So when we talk about the Charter Amendment, it's actually part of the Charter now, and uh, it's very gratifi- gratifying that that happened. That got on the ballot for free, and then the entire campaign was uh, 30000 and uh, here we are today talking about uh, a, a lawsuit that's brought uh, on behalf of Rivers and the citizens of Orange County. I've been speaking with Chuck O'Neill, chairman of the Florida Rights of Nature Network. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Amy. We're hoping that people will go to the website, fl5.org. There you can download the petitions, print them out, sign them, date them, and mail them in to the uh, main office in in Maitland, where we can submit them to the supervisor of of elections office. So uh, if your listeners uh, are looking to learn more about what we're doing, they can go to fl5.org. That was Chuck O'Neill, chairman of the Florida Rights of Nature Network, talking to WMFE's Amy Green. Support for Intersection comes from our listeners and from Advent Health, production assistance for this week's show from our intern Brittany Caldwell, and from Brendan Byrne and Amy Green. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived content over on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening.